Midwestern History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host today, Dr. Camden Bird, and I am an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Lynn Heasley. Lynn is a professor in the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at Western Michigan University. Her books include a co-edited work, Border Flows, A Century of the Canadian-American Water Relationship, as well as another book, A Thousand Pieces of Paradise, Landscape and Property in the Kickapoo Valley. Today, Lynn's writing centers on more than human worlds in the North American Great Lakes, including her last book, which is the subject of our conversation today, The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes, which was recently published by the Michigan State University Press. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Camden. It's great to see you and talk to you again. Yeah, I'm excited. It's been too long. It's been a long time. Um, Well, I'm really excited to talk about the book, uh, the essays, everything that's in here, as much as we can cover in the short time that we have here today. Um, But before we do, I'd really like to hear the the background of this collection of essays. What led you to focus on Great Lakes or in particular, the Accidental Reef, which is the namesake uh, of the book, and the surrounding human and non-human communities that develop around this particular site? Where did this project begin? Oh, thanks. Thanks, Camden. Um, the, the history is actually traces back to a couple of classes that I taught, you know, way back in the day at Western Michigan University. I, I, I taught for about 15 years, a course called American Environmental History, and then for many, many years, a course on Great Lakes history. And within the context of those classes, my students, my Michigander students would always say, oh my gosh, how come I never knew about this before? Or, oh, this is so interesting. Or, oh, I never thought about things like this. And it always combined with the fact that they grew up, you know, many of them would vacation on the Great Lakes, or maybe their families intersected with some of the histories that we talked about, some of the industrial histories, some of the rural histories. And so I had in my mind that I wanted to write a book in which I could tell these really complex stories and yet somehow create a hall for the students too, so that they could see themselves within, you know, this vast, you know, binational watershed, but at the same time dive down into, you know, the fact that Henry Ford had 400,000 acres of forest in the upper peninsula. And, and so that's how it started. And, I, and I'd done a lot of research on the Great Lakes. I had a couple of grants that got me from Quebec City all the way to the Mesabi Range in Minnesota. And so I had, I had done a lot of the research, but I, I came across a real challenge in conceiving of the, the project. Every time I sat down to try to structure it or to kind of do a list of what I wanted to include, it ended up being an encyclopedia. You know, it ended up it ended up looking like an encyclopedia of the Great Lakes, which would be great fun to do with a whole bunch of us. But that wasn't what I had in mind. And so finally I had to to go back and think about how do we learn about a place, you know, and what are the dimensions from the intellect all the way to the heart and soul, you know, that we connect with a place and then and then try to make that, try to build that in a way that that I could eventually get to these larger histories, but but I wasn't reducing everything to encyclopedia sound bites. Yeah, and I like the idea. I'm I'm now endorsing this this Great Lakes encyclopedia, whatever that means. <laughs> you know, we'll talk about that as a future project. For our listeners who are not you have not read the book yet, but will, of course, after listening to this interview, place plays a very central role in throughout this text. And I, I'm you center it I mean, you, you move all over the Great Lakes region throughout, but you really do center the story in the St. Clair River 
particularly this accidental reef. So what is it for you about the St. Clair River that's that's so central, so important to sort of centering your collection of essays around that? Yeah, so I, um, along with that same process that I just told you about, I, you know, I, I returned to the fact that, that my work for my entire career, including some earlier work in West Africa, has always been place and people centric, even if what I research eventually extends into higher levels of policy and to higher levels of social structures. But um, the place places really ground me. And I think to describe the accidental reef of this book and, and what's going on there is we learn about places you know, at small scales to begin with. And, and not just us as academics or historians, but just in our everyday lives, we don't start out by thinking of you know, a place as vast as the Great Lakes. Oh, I'll learn all of the Great Lakes or I'll learn all of Great Lakes policies. The, the way that we learn and the way that we engage is usually these small places. And then we layer up, we layer our experiences, we layer our knowledge, we pursue our interests and our fascinations in different directions, sometimes different directions from each other. And we move up through time until finally, whether we're a historian or an ecologist or a, a fisher or a farmer, you know, we have this, this vast reservoir of understanding. So I, I wanted to ground the book in a place that mattered. And I wanted to start hyper-local in the spirit of that's how we get to know places. I wanted to start really local. But my hyper-local beginning point is underwater. So instead of the fields and forests of the Kickapoo Valley of my first book, or, you know, the herders and farmers of West Africa, I wanted to I wanted to start someplace underwater. So so the accidental reef is literally a pile of rocks that are this accident of industrial history in the St. Clair River close to where it opens up into Lake St. Clair. And the St. Clair River is one of the connecting waters between Lake Huron, Lake St. Clair, the Detroit River and finally into Lake Erie. And so it's this large unbroken waterway but it's also the site, this Huron-Erie waterway or this Huron-Erie corridor is the site where industrialization really took hold in this country in the 19th century. And so there's almost no Great Lakes environmental problem and no Great Lakes environmental problem solving that didn't get either a really early establishment in you know, the St. Clair River or the Detroit River or which wasn't the first <laughs> to experience that. And the same for the problem solving. So this accidental reef is, is this little pile of rocks, this accident of industrial history when a steam, steamship serving a salt mine near Algonac, which is again, you know, near the mouth of the St. Clair River, kept dumping its coal waste over and over and over in the same spot. So the firemen would hack out the chunks of, of waste, you know, in their furnaces, and they would just dump them overboard. And for whatever reason, the currents arranged these, these coal clinkers, these coal cinders into this perfect arrangement to become a spawning reef for lake sturgeon and also other fishes. But also the rocks themselves, which look like little pieces of lava, the rocks themselves had these perfect qualities for protecting sturgeon eggs and sturgeon fry. And so here, this little accident of history became this unknown site 
in this refuge for lake sturgeon during the century that they were almost persecuted to extinction, not just in the St. Clair River, but in all of the Great Lakes. They were, they were fished and polluted and habitat destroyed almost until they went extinct. And so here this little, this little glorious accident of industrial history, you know, became this safe harbor for these lake sturgeon. And so I thought, what, what greater place to start a story about the Great Lakes than to look at the intersections of, of people and fish, but also industry and nature in the Great Lakes itself. And so, you know, we, we start at the reef and then we build up all the life that converges at the reef. And eventually we introduce these two pivotal scuba divers and these important scientists, and we build up all the way to the larger issues. Hence, the accidental reef in the St. Clair River. <laughs> yeah, and, and your the term this is sort of these accidental histories. I love that, and you you definitely demonstrate that early on in a, a few of your essays, which is important to remember. Sort of the interconnectedness between history of humans and non-human forces, as you've noted, uh, even in the, the the story of the sturgeon in the St. Clair River. Right, I mean that sturgeon population could not have survived, existed without being known for a large period of time, their spawning grounds there, if it wasn't for this random industrial accident or act of pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to find a strict dichotomy between human and, and the natural world is, is really an impossible task. You provide several examples of this when describing things like walleye, the sturgeon, zebra mussels. I'm wondering if you could select maybe another example. I, you know, I found the zebra mussel story particularly interesting, <laughs> but I, I'm, I, I think our readers would be interested to see how your mind works of how you connect these sort of ecological moments with human actions, right? So it's hard to tell chicken or egg on ecological issues or human history. So maybe, maybe you could pick one more of these examples and just talk to us more about these intertwined histories of, of human history and ecological reality. Sure. I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. And I'm, and I'm so pleased you made your way all the way through the zebra mussel chapter. Um, <laughs> I was, I was wondering if it would be heavy going or not for people. Um, but I tried hard to, to make it more of a sweep and a flow as opposed to, you know, keeping people bogged down. The, the next the next creature in our more than human world to converge at the reef in this book is the zebra mussel, Dreisina polymorpha. And so if I begin with the the sturgeon, you know, my next intersection is with zebra mussels. And to give some context, um, zebra mussels got their first establishment in the Great Lakes, in the St. Clair River and Lake St. Clair in 1988. That's the first known establishment. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't introduced earlier, but it's their first successful establishment. So once again, this place itself is ecologically and historically significant. It was ships from the Ponto Caspian Sea that likely took a variety of routes. That And, and then if you think of this particular spot that I'm looking at, it's, it's bounded on two sides of Canada and, and the U.S. by Port Huron and Sarnia on the Canadian side. And it's very likely that some transoceanic freighters were unloading ballast water while they were refueling at Sarnia. Um, Sarnia is an industrial city, and the harbors in Sarnia represent about 40% of Canada's petrochemical industry. It's even called Chemical Valley there. So Lake Sturgeon got their establishment, and I, I introduced them at the reef 
but they're they're so loathed in our part of the world. <laughs> they're so hated, and their history is so recent. And so we 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 have we have this antipathy towards this creature that's actually traces its evolutionary history 250 million years in a different part of the world. And there's there are reasons that we loathe them. And so, you know, in the Great Lakes and in in the Huron Erie Corridor, they literally wiped out upwards of 18 species of native clams. They've caused billions of dollars of economic damage to infrastructure. They interfere with our beach experience, you know, as we crunch over them on the beach. But the most important thing is how they've turned food webs upside down. They've really compromised the ecology of the Great Lakes. Um, so again, lots of lots of reasons for us to have this visceral reaction. So I I wanted I wanted to take a step back, and in, instead of taking such an anthropomorphic and visceral reaction to them, I wanted to explore them from different perspectives. And so the chapter is called Underwater Rashomon. Rashomon is a very famous 1950 movie by Akira Kurosawa, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, in which he tells the story of who murdered the samurai four times over, and each one is subjective, each one is its own history. And so what I did with the zebra mussel was try to tell the story of their incredible evolutionary history that gives them the physical characteristics that allowed them to have such a profound impact, you know, within years of entering the St. Clair River. But at the same time to examine them, you know, from that, from these different subjective perspectives so that they're not the villains all the time. Perhaps they were really hardy immigrant travelers because of their evolutionary history, or perhaps they were migrants because of the canal history of 18th and 19th century Europe. And then finally, perhaps they're just little animals that we need to respect, um, if not admire, at least respect and know better and more deeply. In addition, this chapter, even though I don't finish the story in this chapter, there is adaptation eventually when it comes to zebra mussels and other Pontocaspian life. And I don't, I don't end this chapter with that, but I return to that later. So there is some food web ad- adaptation that we'll pursue later. Yeah. And yeah, I found it interesting to think about. Okay, what what is the story of of the zebra mussel? Is it this story of like Russian imperialism and <laughs> canal building? Uh, you know that you know, and then it's not that significant as a Great Lake story, even though it is because it is such a new phenomenon as far as our understanding of the local ecological past. I just love that chapter, and it really speaks to this this sort of larger conversation about perspective, mm-hmm. which is another key theme in your book, right, is, is how do different communities relate to nature, know nature? Yeah. Um, and, and you do such a wonderful job exploring the different vantages mm-hmm. of different individuals in your, in your work, a really a lot centering around the St. Clair River. You look at, you know, indigenous communities, walleye, fishers, scientists, uh, a group of divers, which you referenced earlier, Greg uh, Lashbrook and Kathy Johnson. And before we dive into some of these groups, I'm, I'm curious, what brought you to conduct the oral histories of those two divers, Greg and Kathy? Um, and what do their perspectives bring to, to our understanding of the St. Clair community and, and environmental activism? Yes, thank you for that. Greg, Greg and Kathy were another one of those. Let's, let's call it instead of the accidental reef, you know, the accident of pursuing historical knowledge, right? So, so the way that, that 
Greg and Kathy have come to occupy such a large part of the middle section of the book is itself, you know, contingent and very unforeseen. And so let me back up just a little bit and, and introduce both the book structure, but then also where Greg and Kathy fit into this. So if you think of the book as being structured in three sections, three parts, the first part is very ecocentric. And, you know, we're really trying to understand what's going on underwater and, and trying to get our arms around some really challenging science, you know. So I, I got very, very angry at some of the evolutionary ecologists of zebra mussels <laughs> at one point. It was, it was so challenging. And then how to translate that into a narrative was hard. And so, so you know, this ecocentric perspective in, in which you know, even if I'm not writing about the scientists, I am trying to make sense of the science of these these animals too. Part two then gets us up to these more human scales that we're comfortable with, the, the kinds of issues that, that many of us study or are involved in as activists regionally. Um, so that human scale that, you know, lay readers or historians themselves are intrinsically comfortable with and could follow. And then finally, part three gets us up to you know, what I think to be the the hardest scale to get your arms around, which is the satellite, you know, that those satellite scales of, of the vast Great Lakes, how to how to know them at that scale. So at this human scale, I had come across in some of my my earlier pieces on Lake Sturgeon, I kept coming across these references in the scientific articles to you know, with the help of local fishers, you know, or a local angler brought something to our attention, or with the help of two local sport divers, you know, and and often these people weren't named. There were only one or two allusions in, in either the acknowledgments or in the methods sections of some of these science articles. There were only a couple of times where Greg and Kathy's name was actually written down. You know, usually it was much more anonymized. And I thought to myself, who are these divers? You know, as I'm reading this, who are these two local divers? And in one of the references, they mentioned, you know, what is a much more important reef that's part of the story. So the accidental reef is a little one. But the bigger story is what happened when Greg and Kathy, building on their knowledge and their intersection with the scientific community, when they went on and discovered what is the most important, I'll claim, most important sturgeon spawning site probably in all of the Great Lakes. So I thought, who are these divers? And I thought, well, I want to know more about them. And most importantly, I want to know what they see. I want to know how they see. I want to know what they see. I want to know what they experience that's different than what I would experience. And so I just called them up, kind of a cold call. I investigated who they were. My family even went on a little sturgeon tourist cruise, you know, and Kathy doesn't remember meeting me, but I introduced myself there where she was interpreting and Greg was diving and had the video feed. So I, I did this cold call and I asked if they would consider an oral history interview for the purpose of helping me help readers see what they see and to examine their unique perspective on how their work, their work as divers, conservationists, filmmakers, intersected with these larger conservation stories in the Great Lakes and in the St. Clair River. And it turns out that they had way more intersections than I even knew at the time, but but much of their career really does intersect with this larger human scale that I that I was talking about. So, you know, I drove to, to Port Huron, 
stayed with them in in a little apartment in their in their home for three days, and the interview expanded in so many different directions. And there was so much of relevance to the larger histories that I was writing that I realized I couldn't confine them to a single chapter on what does it look like below. And I couldn't even confine them to a single chapter of their own history. And so the way I solved the problem of, of their amazing firsthand perspective through this, you know, this, what became a more complicated oral history interview was I braided their story in part two. So they're not in every chapter, but I braided their biography. I literally turned part two into a partial biography and, and braided their professional biography into the larger intersections and, and the larger issues that you talked about too. And so again, one of those things where Sometimes the pursuit of knowledge really does take you in unexpected directions, and they are a prime example of that. Yeah, and, and hearing the the backstory of the fact that they're sort of referenced in all this scholarship, and you go on to write that they are critical in sort of the information finding for a lot of these biologists mm -hmm. who are then going to publish on their you know findings as their own research. It's just like a really interesting dynamic, again, of how layered these ways of knowing uh, this watershed really vary depending on, you know, what experiences you are bringing to that place and that space. I mean, I, I think you do a great job of sort of weaving those stories together uh, in which they are both, you know, often different, but closely aligned, right? That mm -hmm. there's this alliance as well between the fish, you know, the, the fish, the fishers and the divers and there's good divers and there's bad <laughs> divers. Uh, yeah, actually, maybe maybe we want to uh, talk about that a little bit. I'd love to, and I and I'm actually very curious. Apart from our Midwestern historians here on our podcast, I'm I'm very curious for any divers that eventually come across this book, and 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 maybe the the fishers and sport anglers too. If you know how this connects with their own firsthand experiences in other places, but at at the at the Saint Clair River. Greg's favorite diving spot is a place called Pine Grove Park, and it's by the seawall. And the seawall itself is part of that larger engineering history, you know, of, of the shipping corridor, if you want to put it that way. Well, that's also a favorite spot for shore fishers to fish for walleye, especially walleye. And as some of you will see in the book, the St. Clair River is, is, is a famous river for how challenging it is to fish because its currents are so strong. And so walleye anglers who are, who are um, fishing either from the shore or in the river itself, they've literally invented a different way of fishing in order to deal with the strong river currents. And I'm not an angler, and Camden now knows that I was very honest about that in, in, <laughs> in that chapter, but I can appreciate what it takes, you know, for several generations of, of fishermen to figure out how to successfully fish, but then also how they connect with the fisheries biologists in order to protect the walleye fishery. And then the pollution itself was so intense that the walleye fishery had to be shut down for almost 10 years, which was devastating, not just to sport angling, but to some First Nation communities. So we go to Pine Grove Park. Greg wants to use Pine Grove Park to dive, but you've got all these, these shore fishers who are very antagonistic to him when he, when he first starts trying to dive there. And the reason they're antagonistic is because apparently there's some long-term antagonism or at least some stereotypes between 
you know, the um, scuba divers and the fishermen who are absolutely convinced that their walleye tackle and their lines are being messed with by the divers underwater. And they're also absolutely convinced that maybe that the divers are scaring away the fish, the bass, the walleye, the other fish that they're that they're angling for. And, and so it, it turns out that no, um, the divers are not scaring away the fish. That's, that's a myth. But there were, there were bad divers who did um, one of two things, either sabotage some of the, some of the anglers, you know, tackle underwater or, and the bigger deal was, would specifically go down and lay traps for the lures so that they could catch the lures and, and, um, and the sinkers. And the sinkers are these big pieces of lead. They're heavy and they're fairly expensive. And so they would try to trap this tackle and then they'd go down and they would harvest the tackle, and then they would resell it used to some of the fishers. And so that is the origin of some antagonism that Greg experienced. Well, it changed because he became part of their community and they started they started sharing sharing help with each other. Greg would help them underwater with some things and he would be their eyes and they were super curious about that. But also they gave him this sense of belonging and community and meaning as well. And so, and then both the divers and the, you know, and the fishers intersect with the scientists who also need those eyes on the water or those eyes underwater. And so it's just a super interesting dynamic. And I'm sure there are local versions in other places as well. Yeah, and you a lot of those stories tend to focus on which is also another, you know, part of your book, right? Which is very much interested in sort of environmental activism is, is the way that those communities can come together or, or start a form of grassroots activism based on their own understanding and, and values put in a particular place. You know, you follow the stories uh, of the Bekejwanong uh, and the Amjanan who are fighting against harmful chemical pollution, uh, but also, you know, the walleye fishers who are, you know, looking to do the same, who are very much interested in sort of protecting the catch. How, you know, what does it mean when you focus on those grassroots environmental activist movements? How should it reshape the way we think about environmental activism in the Great Lakes region? Mm -hmm. Because I suspect most people haven't heard of sort of more of these smaller, localized, place-based actions. But as you point out, actually, this is often, you know, where it begins. This is where environmental activism mm-hmm. begins. So what should we take away from that? I, I, I think I think this is where the field of environmental history has a lot to contribute, because the Great Lakes themselves are nothing but a network of interconnected local and regional activist groups who are intersecting with larger laws, but also larger governmental agencies. And the Great Lakes themselves are binational. So for instance, the St. Clair River is a binational waterway. So it's not just U.S. federal, state, and local agencies. It's U.S. and Canadian federal, state, and local agencies. And so where the local conservationists come in is how they are, how they're embedded in those larger regional conservation structures, including governmental agencies or some of the large non-governmental organization groups, but also how they're driving the work of those agencies and those non-governmental organizations. So I would say in the in the in the case of what I'm writing about, the local history is truly the regional Great Lakes history, which itself is part of a larger binational history too. So in the St. Clair River, how, how did that play out then? The 
St. Clair River is an area of concern, a binational area of concern. So that's a federal EPA and, and Canadian government designation that means that it has a number of these beneficial use impairments, which include pollution and other kinds of things. And it won't be delisted as an area of concern until all of those beneficial use impairments are dealt with. And one of those beneficial use impairments is that history of intense toxic pollution. And that's a century-long history involving what today are transnational chemical corporations. And I'll just give one tiny example of that. Dow Chemical on the Canadian side probably dumped upwards of 300 tons of mercury in the river between 1949 and 1970 when it was forced to stop. And that's just a, that's just the smallest example of the intensity of pollution. And so as an area of concern, one mechanism that can be either weak or powerful, depending on the place, are these binational public advisory committees. And the Binational Public Advisory Committee for the, the St. Clair River area of concern is a very dynamic and interactive group of anglers, First Nations, conservationists, biologists who are all forcing action on these beneficial use impairments and trying to clean up the river essentially, and to great success in some ways. But but when you have such a legacy of toxic pollution and such trauma from that toxic pollution, it, it might take decades, but the work is there. And so that's where the local conservation comes in. And so one of the lessons of the book then is the more you get to know a place from different perspectives, in my argument, at least, the more you get to know a place from these different perspectives, from the underwater perspective, from the fisheries biologist perspective, from the fishers perspective, from the First Nations perspective, um, and not just scientific knowledge, but all these kinds of knowledges, the deeper the care and love for that place and the deeper the care and love that comes from this knowledge, the more active people will be involved in shaping the future of that place. And then they'll push on these agencies to not let down on the job or they'll they'll call them on their failures. And, and there are failures so the discovery of these two sturgeon spawning sites that I write about just activated this huge collaborative, cooperative sense of care and love. And so for First Nations, Anishinaabe First Nations, sturgeon are sacred. But I would also say that within that region, sturgeon have become sacred outside of First Nations as well. And, and now there's this effort to restore them. So that that's some of the lesson that local to regional to national to global, but also that the more people know, <laughs> the more they'll get involved and force change for the better. Yeah. And having, again, sort of very intimate connections with that that place too, right? Uh, you know, all the groups that you're talking about do have sort of their own, you know, whether it's religious or spiritual or just sort of recreational or, or you know, beyond, but they all have a deeply personal connection to place, which is a motivating factor for conservation and, and protecting ecologies. It, it really, it really is. Um, I mean, it, it really is. And it starts young. Um, and, and this is, you know, maybe I'm not, you know, th this is a little bit outside the scope of the book, but in, in my early investigations of who are these two divers, Greg and Kathy, you know, we took this, this sturgeon tourist cruise that I told you about. And my young son came, he was young at the time. He's grown up now, but he, he was young then. And so part of, part of the event, part of the Sturgeon Festival that, that Port Huron holds and will hold again post-COVID, hopefully, is, is, you know, children and adults get a chance um, in, in safe and respectful ways to pet a sturgeon. 
you know, they get to actually go and see the sturgeon up close and pet it. And I really have still not gotten over how meaningful it was to these children to have that really physical, intimate sense of wonder and awe of this creature that they were touching, right? And, and that most of them won't touch underwater ever. But, but yeah, I, I liked your idea that it's intimate because it, it really is intimate. Even the largest conservation issues, Line 5 in the Great Lakes, that's, that's very intimate and personal. It's not just intellectual and economic. There's, there's so many great essays in this collection. And I, it was like the, in preparing for this interview, it was impossible to select which ones I want to talk about. But I, I want to talk about one essay that it's, it's titled Negotiating Abundance and mm-hmm. Scarcity. And may, maybe you've talked about this a bit, but you do talk about that there seems to be not only in the United States, but in the world throughout the, the, you know, the entire globe. Communities uh, uh, have dealt with this, this paradox of abundance, which seems to always lead to almost always lead to environmental exploitation uh, and decline. Point to sort of the, the, the Aral Sea in Russia, you know, the stories of the Dust Bowl, the depletion of the Oglala Aquifer, which is the massive underwater lake underneath the Great Plains, which is, you know, rapidly decreasing in the amount of water it's currently holding. And you say that this is this initial paradox of abundance. Uh, and so maybe defining what you mean by paradox of abundance, and yet you you, you sort of hint that the Great Lakes may have at least until now, escaped that paradox and, and why you think that might be the case. Oh, great. The, I almost titled the book The Paradox of Abundance, but I thought that, that that didn't capture the whole, that didn't capture the sense of wonder and, and the intimacy that we were just talking about. But The Paradox of Abundance is, is one of my arguments in the book, which is that the very concentration of resources is the seed of the destruction of the places with those resources. And so the Great Lakes hasn't hasn't really escaped the paradox of abundance at all across resources. But we'll talk about where what what my argument is when it came to Great Lakes water. But the Great Lakes alone, think of think of the abundance within the Great Lakes region historically, the complete liquidation of eastern white pine in Michigan, Minnesota, and northern Wisconsin in a matter of decades. You know, that is an example of the paradox of abundance. The near extinction of lake sturgeon, you know, and and their persecution and slaughter, to be truthful, in numbers almost beyond belief, and the actual extinction of, of a fish like the Arctic grayling, um, if you think of the iron ranges of northern Michigan and then especially the, the three ranges in Minnesota, you know, we have the, the you know, the, the Great Lakes region has the largest concentration of, of iron ore in North America. And we still supply most iron ore to U.S. industries, too. And so finding it is 19th century Midwestern history, finding those ores and then getting them out of the ground and to, you know, steel and other industries as quickly as possible. That's that's that paradox of abundance. And so the paradox is it happens so quickly at such an intensity and at such a scale that communities don't have a chance to respond, slow it down, and maybe choose alternative paths. So the Great Lakes is, is one example after another. Even the, even the last two, you know, the last two flocks of, of um, passenger pigeon were in Michigan and Wisconsin. That's a Great Lakes story of abundance decimated. 
so what I mean by, by the Great Lakes averting it is when it comes to water, water exploitation and water diversion, so far we've, so far we've escaped <laughs> piping our water out to Kansas or out to California. And just to, for listeners, just a, um, a little signal, a little sensitization for you. If you hear anyone from the American West, especially in a policy or you know, position or a politician, if you ever hear them talk about a national water policy, just know what they mean is ways to move Great Lakes water out west to water poor regions <laughs> like California and Arizona. And so that's part of that history. And so, so we are the largest system of fresh surface water in the world. And so from a satellite view, it looks like we have all this abundant water. Um, how is it, and that's the question in that chapter that you're talking about, Camden, how, how is it that we're holding on to our water so far? I mean, it's polluted. Um, we have all sorts of problems we're trying to deal with. And so, so the answer to the question that I and my collaborator who, who did this little study, um, Daniel McFarland, came up with is it's because it's controlled by two countries instead of one country. So our partial answer to how is it that we don't have pipelines so far sending our water out west and and the very laws that we have to try to conserve our water and, and keep it in the basin, you know, have to pass constitutional muster. Well, you've got two countries who back in the 19th and early 20th century had to come to a resolution with each other on how to co-share and co-manage that water. And so it's a kind of diplomatic history. And part of the culmination of that was the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909. And then, you know, one of the agencies that came out of that treaty is called the International Joint Commission. And the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909 even though it hasn't um, done a lot of things that we might wish, you know, would have protected the Great Lakes. It was one of those landmark documents that we don't think of so much in terms of modern environmentalism, but it required the two countries to anticipate future problems and to solve the problems. And that's the opposite of the paradox of abundance. So the paradox of abundance is liquidate now, react, and try to deal with it later. Well, the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909 forces Canada and the U.S. to problem solve together to anticipate what might their conflicts be in the future, what's going on. And the very fact of being future oriented and trying to deal with pollution in an anticipatory way, but also dealing with water diversion in an anticipatory way so far has safeguarded our water. Now, you know, it's not fixed in time. So we, we have some concerns right now. But that's that's what I meant by the paradox of abundance being averted. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought that was really compelling. You know, you make this case that the, the active foresight of these large communities, uh, who again, who have com not competing interests, but sort of just different interests about the shared resource has led to an arrangement which has not allowed exactly what happens at the Oglala Aquifer and what you don't have binational, uh, you know, international treaties necessitating collaboration or, or forward planning. So exactly. I, I just found that to be really interesting. And I think, I think that it makes, um, and again, you know, I have to, I have to be really careful because people, um, people who study and write about the IJC, many friends of mine, you know, there's, there's, there are many ways that it's fallen short and even failed to, to do some of what, what it's, 100-year-old mandate is. But the Boundary Waters Treaty and the International Joint Commission really do once again make the Great Lakes 
you know, because we're the largest body of these boundary waters, right? So we're not the only boundary water. I mean, we're, but we're the largest of the boundary waters there. It really does make the Great Lakes a center of, of North American action. So not just on the problems of water, but on the problem solving of water too. And Yeah. And I think I'd like to mm-hmm. just read from that essay mm-hmm. really quickly. You talk about water and the paradox of abundance. This is, this is from that essay. Herein lies the paradox. Awesome abundance in nature has often assured its decimation. What's more, for everything that has been lost, and sometimes partially recovered, there is still too much to lose. Some say water is the oil of the 21st century. Half the world's population endures water shortages. Military analysts project migration of water refugees. The World Economic Forum says we're on the brink of water bankruptcy, from oil wars to water wars. In this dark, watery film, Russia's Aral Sea played out early. America's Oglala Aquifer is in decline, a slow drip catastrophe not yet averted. And California's Central Valley just emerged from a 1,000-year mega drought. The Laurentian Great Lakes, well, they would be the oil fields of fresh water. These alone make the Great Lakes worth knowing, its history worth understanding. Not all Great Lakes stories are doom and despairing reactions to doom. At an accidental reef in the St. Clair River, awareness, action, and hope became persistent themes. In the Great Lakes writ large, a century-long legal and diplomatic framework called the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909 allowed Canada and the United States to anticipate problems, to negotiate shared management, to assume responsibilities for problem-solving. In this place that is fragile and formidable, besieged and beloved, we have a few optimistic counterpoints to the paradox of abundance. And for sure, the Great Lakes offer a more helpful storyline than the destruction of the Aral Sea. But the extraction of a place's wealth is something to face head-on, especially when some of that wealth remains. Our predecessors overwhelmed, then consumed great landscapes and waterscapes. We have to change the trajectory of those stories. I hope I'm showing how pivotal the Great Lakes are in larger, you know, North American histories as well. And I, I don't know about you in your classes, Camden, but, you know, in earlier versions of American environmental history, you know, you would, you would start in the, you know, colonial, you know, New England, and then you would fly over the middle section of the U.S. <laughs> to land to the extinction of the bison out West. And then you take a sojourn down to, you know, the, the, rice fields of the American South and that history of slavery. And and then even those Great Lakes stories, such as Love Canal, which is a Great Lakes story, even those stories would be taken out of their regional Great Lakes context. And so with the Boundary Waters Treaty and the International Joint Commission, I think that's just another example of this huge region that has some centrality in, in larger environmental history as well. Yeah, I mean, as someone who also, you know, has an appreciation for Great Lakes environmental history, I I still have that aggravation that it tends to get overlooked (laughs) for its immensity uh, and and critical importance in American history uh, in general. I think your book here is going to do a a great service to sort of updating that and making sure people notice. I also love this book because, and, and going to those, you know, previous stories of environmental history, they can to, they can tend to lead to despair. Uh, and this this is not a story of despair. Certainly a story of caution, worry, and constant vigilance, uh, but, but not a story of, of despair. And I, I want to call your attention, 
the reader's attention uh, or the listener's attention to an essay called Salt Mines and Iron Ranges, an extraction index, which I thought was a very creative uh, essay. I, I just really enjoyed reading that, where you sort of adapt this Harper's Index to examine the immensity of resource extraction in the Great Lakes region, but also the immensity of reaction to it, uh, mm. which again, t- to me, read as this hopeful message of it's not just decline, right? There are often individuals who are working to push back or recover. For listeners who may not know, could you maybe explain briefly what what the Harper's Index actually is and, and why you felt this technique helps to tell that more compelling and complex story of the Great Lakes region? Great. I'd, I'd love to. And, and, and I have to warn, I have to warn listeners too, who eventually check out this particular chapter, you know, some might respond to it with, with despair and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> so it feels very good that Camden actually got that other glimpse that I, that I was trying to provide in there. And so just, just know that um, each reader may experience it differently. The Harper's Index is this beloved column, this beloved column in Harper's Magazine. And Harper's Magazine is is one of the, you know, most revered, you know, magazines historically in the country. And so the Harper's Index is this this brilliant single page in which a series of really idiosyncratic short entries, facts, end with a number, you know. And so it gets you to see things in really bizarre ways, you know. So the researchers for the Harper's Index, they might dive into something with the census and then put two or three entries together with numbers at the end, um, where you're like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that before. That's so odd. Um, it was actually founded by someone that many of us read and, and use in our classes, Michael Pollan, in 1984, long before he became our food sage. Um, he was he, he was editor of the Harper's Index and helped co-launch this particular format. And so what I thought in this Paradox of Abundance section is how, how can I... How, how can I convey the magnitude of the resources that, that we talk about or that, you know, that have undergirded the, basically the entire history of the Great Lakes? How can we convey the magnitude? And I thought the Harper's Index would be perfect. And so I took four lists, four indexes, trees, and then um, salt you know, we have huge salt deposits and brine deposits in Michigan, especially. And a lot of people don't know that. We've, we've got, you know, some of the world's largest salt mines under Lake Erie and under Lake Huron. And then sand and iron. So I took these four resources and I gave each of them 40 entries, which is what Harper's Index does, 40 entries that end in a number. And what I tried to do is just convey the, mag- you know, the magnitude of the extraction of these resources both in the Great Lakes region and globally, but also these glimpses of people trying to find other ways. And so, for instance, with trees, you know, we did have this liquidation of eastern white pine. And and again, I'm hoping that these 40 entries will help people see the scale of that and and be stunned and also be able to get their arms around it in a way because it's such these numbers are so abstract. But within there, you also have the pioneering work of the Menominee tribe of Wisconsin, who going back to the 19th century, exemplified and and still exemplifies sustainable forestry so that they actually have very intensive harvesting operations on their reservation in Wisconsin. And yet their forests have the characteristics of old growth. And, And they have some beautiful 
beautiful stands of old growth eastern white pine left there. And so, so I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, both the magnitude of the extraction, but also some of the, some of the work on the ground to deal with either the, you know, the consequences of this extraction or um, the, you know, having better and more resilient landscapes in ways that, you know, find alternatives to this extraction. So, so the Harper's Index then was a, a kind of experiment for me to apply to issues of resource extraction, but also resource problem solving. I, I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. I enjoyed reading it. And it was a creative way to sort of adapt that index to tell environmental history. Uh, and I, I guess it really is something new. And I think for that should be recognized as well. So thank oh, you for that. Thank you, Camden. And, and I have one little funny Harper's Index story that kind of popped my balloon a little bit. So for a session that I was doing a couple of months ago, we offered a, a prize of one of the illustrations by my illustrator, Glenn Wolf, an amazing artist. So we, we offered one of his illustrations to the first person who, who, who could get close to the answer of one of my factoids, one of my Harper's Index factoids. And so the factoid that I decided was how many grains of sand can an average person hold in their hand? Because sand is one of the indexes. And right out of the gate, someone got like the exact number from the index who had not read it ahead of time. (laughs) So I am, I am curious where, you know, um, how people will respond to those numbers. If it'll, if it'll challenge their ideas or if it actually will be in line with what they're already thinking. But thank you for the comments on creativity. I appreciate that. What, what should listeners of Heartland History take away from Accidental Reef? We all connect to our places, to our scholarship and writing, to our careers as educators. We all connect in different ways. And so, so I suspect that some of that will be dependent on you know, what the reader is bringing to the book itself and the connections that they're making. But if I had to speak for myself and, and take it in a slightly different direction than we've gone so far, I, I wrote the book in part, not as an academic exercise to make the scholarly argument and then demonstrate my argument systematically throughout. I, I wrote it partly to convey how important that sense of wonder, that sense of care, that, that sense of commitment to knowing the natural world, knowing the more than human world, um, our responsibilities to that world, but also the way that that world teaches us. And I think there'll be some some chapters people read where you'll see very clearly it's that more than human world that taught me or taught Greg or taught these scientists. And so I, I guess I would, I would want to re-inject that sense of joy and wonder of, of knowing a place of accumulating, you know, commitments and interrelationships within that place. And then how can we move forward as partners with the natural world and partners with each other where all of our knowledge, you know, has some equality and some standing, something to contribute. So wonder, joy, and passion, I guess, would be, you know, lessons that I would want to come out of this book as well. Yeah, it's great. And again, as someone who's read it, I those were conveyed to me. I felt them as I was reading it. I found this interesting. I've, you know, we were talking before we started recording. I, I've suggested this already to you know non scholars who I think would find uh, a great deal of interest in some of the stories you're telling here. And I, I think for that reason, I, I I would 
absolutely say this is not, you know, meant to be an academic, just an academic for just an academic audience. Uh, it is, it is very engaging and the stories you tell are, you know, great. Thank you, Camden. Well, well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, before we wrap things up, I I'm curious, you know, the book's out just recently it was published, but I'm curious, are you working on anything? Do you have any ideas on future projects? Do you have anything underway? I do. I do. I have, um, I have a few different things underway. There are kind of three broad categories, but I'll only bring one of the categories up here. So, so as a result of this, as a result of this book, there are a few kinds of landforms in the Great Lakes that I would like to return to and look at more deeply. But I would also like to look at them from the perspective of erased histories, um, the centrality of indigenous knowledge and, and, and conservation, and then also to rethink them ecologically. And so my three landforms are uh, uh, coastal sand dunes, Great Lakes coastal sand dunes, um, which have incredible ecological significance, but they've got some amazing stories. So for instance, along the shore of Lake Michigan, you've got the fruit belt, you know, major center of fruit production. And then with that, you have generations of Mexican um, migrant labor that's part of that landscape. And so really, really, I would like to retell you know, the story of sand dunes. My other, my other landform is the Sinclair River Delta. So kind of going back to the accidental reef, but it's the largest freshwater delta in North America. And some people say the world, but I stay conservative. I'll say North America. And it's, um, <laughs> and it's, it's worth revisiting for its own sake, separate from what I did in, in the accidental reef. And then finally, you know, I have another humble place that I'm going to start with. It's called an Alvar. Do you know what an Alvar is? by chance. No. Oh. Oh, so on, on Drummond and Manitoulin Islands in Lake Huron, we have the best examples in the world of a, of a very threatened landform called an alvar. And an alvar is a really special kind of grassland. And it has this intense biodiversity at very small scales. Um, but in places like Drummond Island, you also have a lot of, um, you have a lot of dolomite and limestone mining too. And, and so Again, you know, the, the Alvar, um, Alvars are, are humble. They're not much to look at to an outsider. And yet, ecologically and hopefully culturally, they're very significant, too. So I've got these three landforms that I'll be exploring for the rest of my career. And maybe <laughs> and maybe, maybe some of you will join me um, and partner with me in, in some project related to one of those landforms. I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure our listeners will be looking forward to those future projects as well. Lynn, thank you so much uh, uh, for joining me. I love this conversation. This was great. I really, I really enjoyed reading uh, your work. Again, for our listeners, the book is The Accidental Reef and Other Ecological Odysseys in the Great Lakes, recently published by the Michigan State University Press. Get your hands on a copy at your local bookstore or on the Michigan State University Press website. Uh, Lynn, thank you again. I, this was great. Thank you, Camden.